Hi, and welcome to this episode of the VFX Show. I am joined by my co-reviewers, uh, Mr. Jason Diamond. How are you, Jason? I'm great. Super cold here in the Northeast, but loving it. And uh, Mr. Matt Wall. Actually, should I say professor? Is that appropriate? Professor? Sure. No? Professor, yeah. yeah. Or chairman. Yeah. <laughs> you could be the chairman. Actually, yeah. you should be the professor. Jason, you can be the chairman and I'll be the doctor. There you go. There you I'll, go. Be Ma- I'll be Marianne. Yeah. Or the skipper. <laughs> I thought you were going to go there. <laughs> hey, um, we're doing looking at uh, Andor, uh, Disney Plus's uh, Star Wars prequel series to uh, Rogue One. Um, a ridiculously interesting uh, show that really took everyone by storm, I think. Um, I guess I'm jumping ahead immediately but saying this, but gosh, this was something that wasn't on my radar as a must-see, you know, I'm going to adore it kind of show, and it turned into exactly that. So, Matt, did the rebellion begin for you in this uh, in this series? Yeah, you know, I, I'll be, I, like, I really like Tony Gilroy. I think he's a really great uh, writer more than anything. Uh, but he's made a couple, one, I think, really good movie in particular that I like, which was the Michael Clayton oh, uh, yeah. film, which I think is like a, it's like a Sidney Pollock kind of 70s, you know, or Alan Pakula kind of like, you know, quite paranoid way, thriller. What's that? Quite like, it's quite dense and intricate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a really dense, intricate story with great writing, great characters, and a kind of like, you know, subterfuge, paranoia kind of, you know, thriller component to it. And a, and a cool, um, I mean, he's just a great writer. So when you, when Tony Gilroy stepped in at the tail end of uh, Rogue One and helped with some of that, getting that together, however, that all kind of shook out. And then, uh, which I think Rogue One wound up being, you know, a pretty compelling probably the most compelling Star Wars movie since the original trilogy of films, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, he he comes on and he gets an opportunity to do the show. And I think the choice they make and how they do the show, I, I was a little dubious after uh, Mandalorian and uh, all the, what was the other one? Obi-Wan Kenobi and the Boba, Boba Fett, Fett thing, yeah. which I just think were, you know, they felt like they're for, you know, they're for children, like for little children, really. And I think this is something that it doesn't, doesn't feel like it's for little kids. It feels like it's for like, you know, teenagers and, you know, old farts like us maybe. And I think I, I, I really liked it. I thought it was really incredibly well uh, told, well assembled. And it, it touches on so many fun genre um, concepts and ideas too. And there's some great effects in it. So I dug it. And before we move away from Fraser, as DOP, and of course, uh, Gareth Edwards was the director that yeah. uh, led the charge on that film. Uh, he's a great guy. Um, mm-hmm. And that original story was pitched by John, John Knoll, right? Yeah, by John yeah. yeah. So uh, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a Rogue One as a, as in a concept is, is it's like staring you right in the face, right? I mean, Star Wars opens with a question. And so just ask the question in reverse. Well, what happened before that? How'd they get the plans to the Death Star? And you're like, cool, that's a movie. That's a dope movie. And it turned out to be a great movie. But Jason, the difference here is that Andor isn't 
uh, space wizards flying around no. uh, who, are, who are all from the uh, Skywalker family. In fact, we don't see many space wizardry, Jedi things at all. We see a little bit of space battle in the sort of sun parts, but really it isn't It isn't hitting on it's, any of those familiar themes that uh, visually we've come to rely on in Star Wars. No, I mean, it's, it's a political thriller crossed with the the uh, backroom office uh, tedium of running the empire, which I found super compelling because we never see that stuff. And of course, over the years, there's been tons of jokes about like, what about all the innocent, you know, people who are just working for the empire and the Death Star? It's like, I mean, it's kind of a thing, right? Like, I think it felt like they kind of took that to heart and were like, yeah, there are people on who work for the empire who feel strongly about that. And let's pair that with the rise of the rebellion. And if we have to show someone rebelling, we have to show what they're rebelling against. In Star Wars, we're seeing everyone rebel against the top execs, right? We're seeing like, you know, down with the CEO, Vader and Palpatine. And now we're, this is all middle management battles. Uh, and it's, it was compelling as hell. Like we, we, so many great characters, so many great themes as matt put it um genre things and i i i would hesitate to say that it partially because there's no feloni and favreau involved and i'm not saying that because they're bad but they make a specific kind of star wars product and i believe without them gilroy was allowed to make a gilroy product which i think they went into right out of the gate with guaranteeing him two 12 episode seasons. So actually I was going to raise something that. like that. Yeah. yeah. Matt, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I think one of the huge advantages this show had is that it had 12 apps. And so mm. what you got for me anyway, was almost like, I'm going to say three or four of these mini arcs. So like, I wasn't watching it going, uh, this isn't all going to resolve to the end. And in the case of WandaVision or something like that, where I went, yeah, the ending just doesn't really satisfy me. It was like huge buildup and didn't kind of pay off. Here, every few weeks, like say three or four weeks, you'd have the heist, then you'd have the jailbreak, you know, like, and every one of those was satisfying as their own mini arc inside a bigger arc. But you didn't feel like, yeah, I got a filler episode until eventually, obviously we're going to have the big finale. Um, and I think in some of these shows, like She-Hulk, for example, like you, you had a lot of middle stuff that just felt like kind of filler, like She-Hulk goes off to the uh, wedding. You know, it's like, we didn't really need that episode, but hey, the ending was brilliant. And so I kind of forgave it, you know, it's sin. I mean, even Mando like, had some fillers Oh too. no, I don't want to miss out. You could argue that, uh, that, uh, yeah, Boba Fett had Mando fillers. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> the thing is, I just felt like having 12 apps, they could take time to kind of play things out and then not worry that, uh, you know, they just had to quickly get to this one clever kind of ending. Or I think, one yeah, I think, I think in the, the writing and in the breakdown of the, the, at least of this first season, you know, they, they, chose a fixed number of characters upon which to focus. And we sort of had these nice um, opportunities to flesh out the characters of, you know, Andor and, uh, you know, his mother, uh, his his friend, his kind of lady friend-ish, uh, or I don't know if that was like the girl that he grew up with or something in the, before they came uh, to the city. But then you've got the Imperial, the young Imperial guy, 
uh, the imperial girl, the kind of mean one, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and then you've got the other characters in the uh, heist, and you know you get a really great opportunity to kind of get to know all these, as well as the the Senate uh, scenario with the uh, I can't remember Mon the Mothma. actor's name. Yeah, Mon Mothma. That's her name. Um, but the other thing I think that's really great when you talk about these kind of, you know, separate kind of chapters that are taking place over the course of the season. So we get these different arcs and we don't get the filler. You know, I think the thing I was thinking about watching it, and I don't know if this was the intent, but, you know, the opening thing with the the idea of the, um, you know, the heist, really, it feels like we're watching, you know, force 10 from navarone or guns mm -hmm. of navarone or kelly's heroes or something like that this yeah. old kind of like world war ii style you know heist film that sort of sets everything in motion and then we you know get that sort of second uh major thread which ends with an incredibly amazing prison break episode you know yeah. where and you know, there it's just this crazy set of circumstances where they build these these machinations. Well, not to interrupt you or anything, but build. but I'm going to but but there was actually a, that first three episodes as well. Like there was the three episodes of sort of getting out of the town, right? Where right. Like, there was the murder and the and I thought that brilliant kind of the guy that played the uh, the I don't know the cop uh, the you know imperial. Uh, mm -hmm supervisor mm -hmm. who you know tailored his own suits and uh yeah. that was a beautiful characterization but that was three eps and then so there was that three eps getting off then there was the three the eps of the heist yeah and yeah. then the three eps of the jailbreak and i mean they were oh and the last ones of course they were all very satisfying in their own way um, yeah yeah but they all built yeah. they built they were they were mini acts building still forward uh creating a, you know the full arc um, I think, um, uh, what was I going to say? I thought it, it, the interesting thing is, cause I think I saw something from Gilroy that said this starts five years before Rogue One. Um, so, uh, season two, I would hope will do what Rogue One did to, um, what Rogue One did to Star Wars, where season two will end at Rogue One. I hope that would be a great, like, just kind of run them all together kind of thing. But to your point about the writing, though, because we know what's coming, because we yeah. know where Rogue One is going to end up, um, in a sense, it could have been a bit deflating, right? Because it's like, well, we know, right, we know Andor's going to survive the whole time, right? He has to. Yeah, but it didn't feel like that at all. And then every once in a while, you'd get characters coming in from Rogue One um, mm -hmm. and you'd be like, oh, I'm reminded more than, like I wasn't living in the Rogue One world so much as reminded yeah. that I'm heading towards Rogue One that I thought uh, it was great. I'm trying to remember the name of the character. Um, the Forrest uh, Whitaker guy. Yeah, what's his, what's for But anyway, when Forrest uh, Whitaker- Saul Guerrera. It's like Saul, right. Saul Guerrera, yeah. And his performance is so- beautifully unhinged like he does feel that guy's one like you know conversation yeah. away from going postal and and i'm reminded like oh yeah well something's going to happen and stuff stuff's going to you know he's going to play but i didn't feel like all oh, right you know sort of here we go let's well so i know we've talked about a bunch of stuff in like the other other star wars series and me and even in the 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 post schools or actual sequels you know films where there's this fan service where they're picking 
uh, holes to fill and little plot hole character things to build. And you, I think again, back to the writing from Gilroy that the, or team Gilroy and team that the Mon Mothma character is one that no one was crying out for Mon Mothma's backstory. Right. But they give her a very hard arc of the Senate sort of position that almost that Padme sort of relinquishes at the end of the prequels that we have no more entrance into the Senate or understanding what's happening with the emperor. Cause of course we know right pretty much at the beginning of star Wars, we get the monologue about that's when the emperor like disbands the Senate. So we're not there yeah. yet, but it's like a Senate in turmoil. Um, they're calling him the emperor, but he hasn't emperorized himself really for another five years or something. Uh, but the political intrigue, I think, between her character and Stellan Skarsgård's character, who's like, they're both funding the rebellion. It's the, the, the up, again, the upper management infiltration of rebellious activities. The funding has to come from somewhere. And I mean, she does play a huge part in Star Wars at the end. You know, she's the one explaining with General Dodonna, like what's happening and how they have to use the information they've gathered which we assume she will have helped gather now that we're in that world. So it's that to me is like the proper connected threads of the, the sort of heart of star Wars, not the like, you know, Boba Fett's, you know, father being a clone thing, like from the prequels, like that felt like over the top. Yeah. And I, I think they build a, like a more complex, uh, sense of the universe too there's these cultural Mm -hmm. things that they talk about like you know you see this sort of decadent society on the big city planet where she's the senator or whatever and you Mm -hmm. know there's this eventual kind of of thing of like an arranged marriage with her young daughter and this young kid Mm -hmm. and there's this kind of repulsion to these kind of cultural uh norms that are acceptable in this decadent wealthy world but there's this slow over the course of the whole series there's this slow building of these kind of difficult and challenging and certainly not easy alliances that have to be formed with all these different characters who formulate and come together to create you know i guess the rebellion right which is this fractious group of people it's not like sort of it adds so much more density complexity and I think intrigue to what we eventually, mm-hmm. what, what we already know, it kind of makes the backstory of all that stuff much more compelling. And it ha- it gives it complexity and depth that I think we're not used to getting in Star yeah. Wars in a way that I, I find really like super refreshing and exciting from a story uh, point of view, as well as like a, a depth point of view, like that the motivations that bring all these people together, they're all kind Mm -hmm. of motivated by different things. There's a similar pressure that they all live under, but at the same time too, they're kind of coming to it for their own reasons. And you kind of understand everybody's reason for doing it. And it's just kind of interesting that they, they align enough to, they align enough to pursue the same goal. Also just to your, your like traditions and sort of cultural things, even, you know, every heist needs a ticking clock. So what's the ticking clock for the heist is the basically the like meteor gate that's going to close 
based on saturation of meteors tied to the like nomadic peoples who have a religious sort of thing around that and tying it to old tradition and thing and it's not you know and they're which the is probably the most beautiful force. visual effects thing in the whole yeah world. yeah we, we're going to get to that yeah. in one second <laughs> but, but i just wanted to say one thing also that you know like from an academic point of view like there's that whole concept of people doing research that's just gap spotting and you, know, you find a little gap mm -hmm. and fill it that's not very interesting stuff and i feel like that's something that we just touched on with like some of these narratives but the other thing i would say is i was really disappointed in the last star wars episode nine uh, when it was all like, oh, well, Ray is related into the family. And yeah. so it suddenly became not anyone could be a player mm -hmm. in this story. You had to be basically royalty or a version of royalty that was, you know, the anti-royalty. But it was all like these two families and everybody was related to these families. And it was all, it all felt like it was around a couple of planets and a couple of families intrigue and i thought that was so disappointing because like earlier there was a shot at the end of one of the earlier sequels where there was a kid kind of brooming mm -hmm. um and it was like oh well, he Johnson's has the force yeah. yeah and it was like yeah anyone could have the force and i just thought it would have been great if ray's character uh had not been a skywalker had not been uh you know like related to the like none of that and had just been the next generation of a sort of somebody that came through with the force and stuff instead of that it's like you know, okay, well, that's all. Well, it's, it's ironic just, in a nope. in a in a in a universe, right? It's uh, it's ironic that as they expand the cinematic and television universe, yeah. they made everything feel smaller by doing yeah. that. Mm -hmm. I think by by containing it to this kind of yeah, You're this so family, right. this royalty. But I think mm -hmm. what's exciting about about uh, Andor, which by the way, I just have to say, Andor, I always think of. Uh, in the United States, Schoolhouse Rock, Conjunction, Junction, and Buttonore <laughs> can get you pretty far. Um, but the uh, the the idea that in Andor, at least, like it feels like the universe becomes larger again, like it expands yeah. in a meaningful way, where it's about totally different characters with totally different motivations, of which later these you know space wizards will come into play in this family, but yeah. like. And and the beautiful thing is they didn't good. expand it like in the some of the criticisms I've had of the DC universe they expanded by making the stakes enormously bigger right right yeah like they were, like to expand it by making a Death Star capable of destroying galaxies would be a way of expanding and upping the stakes but at some point you just yawn right it's like but they didn't expand it by making it about a Death Star that could blow up you know sixteen planets instead of one. They made it about whether or not they could disrupt the funding of an mm -hmm. organization that will cause the empire to react by tightening the screws, which in turn will, will uh, you know, stop the, uh, I think he describes it as that sort of like slowly being strangled and not even noticing you're being strangled. Mm -hmm. So what a great way to expand the universe, but not expand it out in this kind of verbose way, but almost in a, a more articulated way. Uh, well, it's going, it's like, it's like you think of the word expansion and you think outward, right? Outward expansion. And that's where you get these fantastical things because you have to just keep going donut bigger, ring, bigger, bigger, out, yeah. out, out. But in this case, this is an inner, inner, inner space, you know, kind of inner expansion because <laughs> in, uh, introspansion, uh, because 
it's going into the mechanism, not outside the mechanism. And it's exploring all the things that need to happen inside the mechanism to disrupt it, not, oh, well, we have to fire a bullet from space to disrupt the mechanism. We're like, no, we're going to get really small and go inside the mechanism and disrupt it. And flood the floor so it shorts out the electricals. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I Look, we're going to get to the visual effects and some of the art direction in a second, but I don't know who wants to take this. Uh, Maybe I'll throw it to you, Matt, but we can't go past, if we're talking about the writing, that amazing speech uh, on the, uh, um, I don't know, whatever he's on really, like a kind of a inner workings. When um, when Skargart's, uh, that's how you say his name? Skargart's. Skarsgard, yeah. yeah. Uh, Scar- so his monologue about uh, his motivation and his sacrifice. I mean, talk about a standout monologue. That's a piece of, firstly, it's a piece of writing any actor would just, rejoice to get as his, you know, mm-hmm. here's your script for the week. But then secondly, boy, does he deliver it in a way that I just thought that performance just upped it. I was sort of thinking initially when he started talking that it was not going to be that. And it just kept on building. And I was like, okay, this is some really good writing. This isn't just <laughs> reworking Henry V. This is actually going for something um, original and quite poignant. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think, you know, it, again, it just speaks to the talent of, uh, you know, the showrunner and the people in the writer's room who are, you know, really focusing in on trying to make something, I think, really special, something that feels like it's a it's a real gripping story with real characters who have, uh, you know, rich backstories and, and they are motivated by things that through speeches like the one you're describing are articulated in such a way that we understand why they're doing what they're doing. You know, I mean, it, it makes you as a viewer vested. It makes you care. Like, you know, I think it, it, it's great that it's across the board. It's really solid. It, it feels like as you guys are talking, I'm thinking about like just the larger aspect of it. And it feels like instead of like say Boba Fett, where they set out to write a Star Wars story. This was, they set out to write a good story about good characters that happened to be in the Star Wars universe. Totally. Which yeah. I think is a really subtle distinction because it's not taking away from their obviously writing for the Star Wars universe, but it seemed like, and I think we've touched on this in a bunch of different ways, that that's not the focus. Like it's implied. Like we know we're in the Star Wars universe, so let's like, take a step back and just write about what's happening with the characters, knowing that certainly uh, art direction, uh, set design, uh, visual effects will take care of the visual aspect of letting people know that they're going to be in the Star Wars universe. So let's take the writing and actually, you know, not make it everything about Star Wars. That's a, so, such a great point because I think if it's just Star Wars, only about Star Wars, it's a navel gazing story, you know. Mm-hmm. But to make it a story about people, about the formation of, you know, this disparate group of people who come together in, in this, you know, to create this rebellion, you know, that's like a, the formation of a Mujahideen or something, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a much more interesting, gripping political narrative that 
has so many real world analogies and to place it in the Star Wars world where we kind of all know what the stakes are, you know, it's black and white Mm -hmm. versus evil kind of, but they kind of make the formation of this group sort of something that's kind of gray a little bit. And it just makes it just so much richer. I think you, you, that's such a great point that it's it's not a Star Wars story. It's a human story set in the Star Wars world. Well, and also to your point, what I think this show adds to the Star Wars black and white good and evil thing is a bit of your gray, I'm going to say the word indifference. Mm. There are people just like there are in the real world who are indifferent to the struggles of of good and bad, right and wrong, left and right, however you want, whatever your viewpoint is on the ends of things. And there is a bit of indifference in the middle of people who don't have enough time, energy, or you know, disposition to pick a side and they're like, well, I'm just going to live my life and be here. And I think that's what you get in this. There's a, there's a world of people just living their lives who don't know there should be a rebellion and who don't know about all this shit that's going on. I mean, they're going to find out later, but. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things that I'd love you to comment on Jason is that if you think about it just from a purely visual point of view for a second now, switching gears, You've got um, a kind of a Tatooine kind of earth boundy sort of set of very earthy tones, very whatever, super mm-hmm. contrasted with this uh, THX kind of, um, I don't know, 2001 almost sort of prison type uh, gleaming white. Then they're on a beach at a resort and then I they're in the s- then they're in space. You know, the Hawaiian shirts are great. But then they're in space and there's that great sequence where he uh, breaks away from being um, uh, caught in the tractor beam and stuff. And these are mm-hmm. all very, very different visual styles. How is it they managed to make that not feel like a patchwork quilt of unrelated styles? Because it felt all great to me, but they're really visually very, very different. I mean, we're... At least, I think, luckily, they're working with a known palette of sorts, right, that you can stray from. You have, everybody knows there's a space component. Certainly seeing, like, the radar dish destroyer thing was cool. You know, like, they took enough liberty to distinguish, like, here's a new Star Destroyer we haven't seen. And, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's enough, They they found enough, familiarity while creating new things. So you have Tatooine, Jeddah, slash uh, what Ray's planet, uh, the planet Ray was on. Uh, you know, you have these dusty, musty planets. And then you have, you have, of course, the Imperial design language, lots of triangles and sort of circ- ovals and things like that. Shiny, very, you know, felty, welty, kind of things. Oh, and let's not um, forget the office environment with the, uh, you know, the the minions sitting there in their, I don't know what you'd call it, right? Like vast wasteland of middle uh, managers punching yeah. keys in the <laughs> <laughs> cubicles of hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, I, the, I, I feel like it's much like we were talking about earlier the extension the the in, introspection of the story language the visual language is the same it's hey we're gonna use the themes we've we have so much historical language and reference for and just really like nail it each one where do we need to be like even the coruscant stuff like we've been to coruscant for three movies 
right? In the prequels, let's, and I think we, they even go back to it in the, do they go back to it in the, I can't remember if they've gone back to it, but anyway, we certainly saw it for three movies and to go back there is very smart. You see, of course they pick real, I think the, and and this is where we're going to go with some of visual effects and other things is they picked real things. This is not a green screen show. And I don't believe it's super heavy virtual production, although they clearly used it, but not in the way that it has been before. And I think we've all picked out and talked about um, ad nauseum, but they're using these, like the way they did in interstellar where you use the hotel from, I forget where it is in LA that you just, you know, dress the hallways to look like people working. And all of a sudden, all this huge concrete structure takes a different form. Certainly where Stellan Skarsgård stuff is, it's, I mean, to, you made the THX reference before. I mean, THX 1138 is a mastery masterclass in using um, public spaces and form to reconstruct a new sort of viewpoint of how it could be used or rather how it is being used to look like something else. And I feel like that's what they did here really well. Of course they built like the whole town where um, the town space where um, yeah, the all the action takes the, the worker town um, where like Andor mining, and his, it's like a mining town, isn't it really? Yeah. Something yeah. like that. I love my favorite visual of all of that is the wall of gloves. Like oh, that, I'm so glad you mentioned that. That is such an incredible production design thing. It tells you so much. Everything. Like it tells you so much about the people, how many people, the depth of the different, yep. you know, how many, some are destroyed, some are newer, like it's brilliant production design um, and, set, and set decoration and, you know, however, you know, all of those things came to be through the different departments. But I really think there's a physicality to it that, that really helps sell everything. I mean, they must have spent a shitload of money on making sets and towns and stuff. They're clearly going to use it for two seasons, so it probably worked out overall. I, I I just think there's a physicality to it that makes it all work. The design is is just refining the language from all the other opportunities and touch points. But and 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 can I just say? And I get you to weigh in on this, Matt. It seems to me also when it comes to the visual effects, obviously, as Jason just said, there's a ton of it probably all the way th through, but it felt like to me to use a painting analogy, they had bright red paint on their on their sort of palette, but they just, just chose not to use it most of the time. But when they used it, like it was knock your socks off good. And I'm thinking of the meteor shower and the mm. space uh, destruction sequence, but like that was just... And it wasn't isolated, but it was like earned is probably the best way to describe it. And when it was happening, it was such a visual feast because it wasn't overworked. I don't know. That's what I thought. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, to Jason's point about the the sets, you know, the set of the town and the, you know, the houses and stuff, and then the 
imperial conference room or whatever you know like you know it which interestingly was white you know it's super bright white mm -hmm. space it's like you're inside of a refrigerator or something you know i mean I think some of those choices were really interesting and then the use of actual like you said the use of actual locations and uh using that as part of the world building creating environments like that kind of brutalist industrial mm -hmm. kind of triangular space that's like an apartment building where mm -hmm. i think the yeah. the one imperial guy with his name cyril or whatever lives with his mother yeah. you know his and jewish like, mother his old jewish and, grandmother yeah, mother yeah. And that, <laughs> i mean and that's which, that was, stuff's, which was great that stuff's really cool you know and again that adds to that cultural thing too that there's this culture of yeah and a, and a certain perception of who he is as a person versus who mm -hmm. he kind of really maybe is as a as a or is becoming as an individual person but I think all that stuff is really cool and it does make for this kind of pregnant sense uh, in the viewer of this incredible release that we feel and get in those crescendo moments that also utilize the more grandiose visual effects so in the meteor shower bit where i mean it just takes on a whole nother aesthetic i mean it's so gorgeous the beautiful colors mm -hmm. and the techniques the design of that the design language of it but then also you know the sort of thrill and excitement and the action of something like the prison break when things finally start to go crazy and you know people are getting shot left and right and you're just like dang wait i thought that guy was gonna get out you know and i think that kind of stuff really adds to the excitement and and helps punctuate those moments in a way too because the rest of it is more cerebral i think in a way uh when so that makes those visual effects moments really stand out more yeah i i know we've moved back on to visual effects but just one shout out like andy circus here i think that's the best yeah. acting he's done that was just you know he, oh yeah it wasn't great. one note it was really good acting it was it was like uh it was like thx meets papillon yes mm -hmm. very good very good right and yeah but the breakout itself didn't have vast amounts of visual effects they had those kind of shots where they're looking over at all the other columns of guys queuing mm -hmm. up in various parts but when you think about it you know I mean, there was obviously some laser fire at that point and um and the end sequence when poor old Andy Circus doesn't make it. But notwithstanding that, it wasn't a huge kind of effectsy thing. It was just quite constrained as it needed to be as being a prison uh, with some really effective use of lighting and uh, the threat, the ominous threat of this floor. Uh, I thought- well, It was just, like three set pieces, right? It's like the workroom, yeah. some hallways, and their like prison, like sleeping area. The rest are like- the West Wing kind of endless hallway kind of style set yeah. that you just walk in a bunch of different directions on the same circle and you're in like nine hallways, you know. Uh, ironically, when they break out and they hit the aliens uh, that, you know, zap them with the uh, kind of uh, instant foam capture stuff mm -hmm. before they... Um, mm -hmm. the, the, I love the those guys. Yeah, exactly. That's probably like much more, if you look at the budget, that's really like a complete spike <laughs> in the budget for visual effects compared to the breakout. Having said that, it never felt cheap or we were treading water. It just felt compelling. Um, well, that's what that's what gave me the Papillon vibe. It's like, you know, when they go in Papillon, they escape and then they go to the boat that they're supposed to, that they paid for. And it like steps through, steps in the boat and goes through the hull. And then they, and then they're caught by the lepers. You know, it's like, it's a whole, 
catastrophe of events that you think they're finally out. They're finally out. They're finally out. Uh, even, even when they finally get all the way out and he like sneaks back into the hotel room and gets the stuff from on top of the weird shower thing. And they're back in the resort area, which I thought was great. I was like, you've the way they shot that too, long lens, like misty, lots of great light. Like it felt super real. Like Mm -hmm. they obviously went somewhere in Southeast Asia or somewhere to shoot that. And it, it was gorgeous. And yeah, him in like, kind of like a loungy shirt. Uh, But, but, but again, going through visual effects matching with story, the way that the visual effects there helped augment that environment. um, And to show the nature of the empire ramping up um, the sort of, you know, anyone who's slightly seen as dissenting, well, we're just going to grab you. Like he literally does nothing wrong and he gets thrown in that prison. And so you could say, if you're really being analytical, like, oh, it was just a means to get him into the prison for that sequence. But it fits the, if it was a soul like series that didn't connect anything, that would be true. But because we know hours and hours and hours of material and, and, 20, 30, 40 years later in that timeline that there are very serious things happening with overreach of government and and security and whatever, it totally makes sense. This like tiny plot point. uh, But you get that that too when in the first act, I think it's in the first act when, you know, all those guys of whom the Cyril character is one of the sort of in the blue uniforms, they're like the brown Mm -hmm. shirts, you know, like, and they're Mm -hmm. sort of coming into the town and they're making all of these, you know, pretty irrational kind of demands on the people who are just like, you know, workers doing their thing. And it, it definitely starts to feel like, you know, this, the, the nature of the, the sort of control, the attempt to control more mm-hmm. and more of yeah. you know people who are free to some extent, even though they're, you know, minors or whatever, that they're, they're losing that autonomy. And, and that's part of, you feel that closing in, in the world itself. Mm-hmm. I also thought there was good use of visual effects and special effects with the droids, because you can't have Star Wars without the droids. Mm-hmm. But like we saw uh, K2SO, or, you know, the one that uh, Alan plays from um, Rogue One, or at least a version yeah. of him when he grabs mm-hmm. him at that mm-hmm. scene for yeah. uh, arresting him. And then this incredibly cute droid um, that his mother's house. Um, yeah, great you know, droid. The, yeah, which seemed like so empathetic and so like. Um, I didn't, like, I didn't I don't like know. that design at all. Oh, the design of it <laughs> or the of the way it was very it was black played. hole. It looked like reminded me of the black hole. The it movie, just looked right? like a, it looked like a garbage can that you put on one of those like a rubber made garbage can where it has that thing you can put it on that has the wheels on it. It's a, I don't know. I just thought it was a somewhat uninspired design. <laughs> but I guess I, it was not as much the the practical art direction design as it was the attitude that they gave the droid right? the emotive Which character sort of, this, of it yeah sure. exactly that's a better way to of me saying it. <laughs> to, to me that well to me and maybe i embraced the sort of vague nature of the of the purpose of that droid like you know a lot of other droids you sort of like the little mouse droids and the gronks and all the you know all the sort of droids you see bumbling around doing stuff you know you know c3po is a protocol droid and they all sort of have their function there's no just random droids but this guy 
you kind of, you know, he looked like an Ottoman to a certain extent. Like you're not entirely (laughs) sure what his function was, except Mm -hmm. that from an emotional standpoint, he was a member of the family. And so it's almost like- he was a pet, but it's a pet. It, it yeah, he's felt or like, like a, it felt and like, he's a child thing. Like he's sort of the child yeah. part of the narrative, or, or the dog that waits for his master to come home that never comes home because yeah, he's gone to war. It, you know, right? But it, it felt you. like this is one of those things that felt like they went all the way through all the Star Wars things, all the way to Episode Nine, knowing that people will have watched all that to be able to have a droid that has no function per se, but can be just the emotive nature that we get from like um, BB-8 or, you know, like BB-8 didn't really have a function, but because he was a sidekick, it had, he had a function because he helped Ray, but he didn't really do anything. You didn't really know what he was made for. If you saw other droids, you, I mean, like you, him, to you gotta have it. You gotta have you gotta have a robot, and you gotta have a couple aliens. But I have to say, I and we sort of touched on this a minute ago. I love the fact that the robots and the aliens were so minimal in this story. Like they, that's so interesting, right? It's so different than a lot what of humans, we're accustomed yeah. to. It's it was yeah, it's a very human part of the universe right you know it's like we're sort of focused in this very Mm -hmm. human space and i it was cool when we did see some aliens and it was really cool when we did see a couple robots but it wasn't but i uh, felt like that was the same thing with the visual effects right it was like we know you can do aliens we know you can do guys in rubber suits we know that you can do the cantina and then top the cantina and then top the cantina again so we don't need you to do that it's not that you couldn't do it or you didn't have the budget to do it it's just you chose not to do it like I think we got great aliens in the idea that there were tribes or people that were completely displaced by the technology of an empire expanding into their mm-hmm. area, mining out their towns, you know, clobbering their 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 environments, uh, which is of course how Andor came to be in the place that he was at in the first place. But but yeah, we didn't need them to have you know pointy ears and be blue. We just was enough that we knew that they could do that if they wanted to. They just happened not to be this time. Because it never felt like they weren't doing it to save money. They just felt like they just didn't need to do it. Well, interesting what it hammers home, really, is something that is touched on in the original trilogy, is that there aren't any there aren't any aliens in the Empire. They're all people. That's I don't recall. It's not, like, it's not like they have a Balrog or something they're going to pull out, like yeah. in Lord of the Rings. They're like, bring out the giant cave trolls to throw rocks. They're just people. Whereas the Rebellion is mixed with the rest of the world's uh, plural how did I not, galaxies. How did I not notice that before? That's amazing. I, I, had... I kind of only thought of it <laughs> while we're talking about it, quite frankly. But it's, no, the, no, but think about that for a second. That's amazing. That is like one of those moments where someone goes, hey, at the end of Indiana Jones, it made no difference if Indiana Jones had ever done anything. Yeah. And you go, how could I not see that? Because in a sense, <laughs> it's the ultimate kind of, uh, dare I say it, and I say this as a as a white male of an age, but it's almost like this kind of uh, Anglo-Saxon elitism of assuming that you've got a kind of superior uh, racial profile that means that you want to be just you versus the wonderful inclusion that comes from the rest of everybody mixing and and doing stuff. So there's a, yeah, that's a really interesting point. And, and boy, doesn't that play well? That plays really well, doesn't it? Huh. Very insightful of you, Jason. I give you. Oh, thank I'm, you very much. My Star Wars scholar I, scholarliness has paid off by the I age of 51. To, 
to give a shout out to a, a old colleague of mine who I worked with uh, originally on Speed 2 Cruise Control, a movie that I'm sure Excellent. you absolutely love. I've never <laughs> seen it. Absolute classic. And I worked with also on uh, Small Soldiers and then on The Matrix uh, 2 and 3. But Mo and Leo is the overall visual effects supervisor on the series. And oh, uh, sweet. He's just such a brilliant guy and so talented and uh, has had an amazing uh, career. So it's really exciting to see him, uh, you know, helming the effects for this big series and, you know, really coming up with, I, I read a, or I didn't read, I heard an interview with Tony Gilroy. I can't remember now where though it was some, you know, what some of the press kind of stuff he was doing mm -hmm. around the series. And he talked about that sequence um, at the festival, the sort of religious pilgrimage mm -hmm. in the meteor shower, and that that look and design and the aesthetic that like they didn't quite have an exact idea of what they wanted it to look like. And it really was, um, you know, the visual effects art directors and that team, uh, the visual effects people who came up with, you know, this look and this aesthetic, at, at least that's the story he told in the interview I heard. And I thought that was so cool. And he even, you know, mentions Moen uh, in the. Uh, it's interesting that those are the films you pick yeah. out of Moen's uh, track record. Well, I just because... pick them out because those are the ones I worked on with him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Because he was also on like The Martian. Uh, no, I know. He was he's on done, he's Iron gone Man, on to do on really cool Ant -Man, stuff. I... <laughs> like, and not least of which, of course, was uh, Rogue One itself. Um, he no, was on totally. that. And... <laughs> I was just anchoring <laughs> but, him into the, you know, the 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 early days. Those, and I thought Little, so I thought, what is it? The Soldier One? What was that soldiers. film called? Small Soldier. That was a, I, have, I have fond memories of that film from when it, when it came out. So um but there's okay, a guy but yeah. out there who loves that movie so much that he's like reached out to everybody who's in the credits working on it and he does 3d prints and he makes his own little small soldiers i've seen his oh, stuff cool. online somewhere some some i can't remember his name but some super sure. fan but it's, just, it's funny that you're on mission impossible ghost protocol and the thing that you're referred to is uh <laughs> the work that you did on speed on, two cruise uh, control speed two cruise control yeah <laughs> which you know uh, anyway, um, yes, no, I think the visual effects are really, really good. And I, I think you touched on it earlier, Jason, when you said one of the most remarkable things is it does feel like this was all shot on location. This feels like this was shot. Mm -hmm. This this is like Game of Thrones location level, like you imagine 100%. there are teams going all over the world. And that couldn't have been the case because of both COVID and budget. And yet, boy, did the team pull it off in making it feel external and rich at the same time. I think it's just like, again, it's sort of what we were saying before about you utilizing existing structures in different ways to create physical, new physical structures for the Star Wars world. You know, it's not a Star Wars without a forest somewhere. And, you know, when they're on the heist and they're living in the forest in this sort of, you know, very stripped down nature, like, they're in the woods. Like they're they're definitely in the woods, right? Okay, like, but, so but not to hammer my point about the red paint again, but that that works so well because when they're in that high section, when they're coming out of the woods, and then that star cruiser or whatever comes overhead, yeah. and because we haven't seen fifteen of them, I'm like yeah. shocked at the mm -hmm. size of it, the scope of it, the tech of yeah. it, the and how much it just is out of sync with the country and the people of the of where they are. And it really has impact. Why it wouldn't have had impact if that was the 18th time we'd seen one of those ships flying around in right. wide establishing shots. 
Well, and again, you know, you get the same, well, let me just say, make this point. You get the same visual language when they go and they decide, okay, it's time to do the run. Like we're going to do the heist and they creep to the ridge and they look out over everything. That is the same shot as Ben and Luke, you know, and the the land speeder looking out over what they're going to go. They're about to cross, you know, cross the cliff visually and, you know, story point into Moss Eisley. There's no turning back. We don't have the ropes to go backwards. You know, it's the same thing, not a copycat. Thematically, it's the same. And so there's all these little nods and physical sort of things, the Star Destroyer for scale and all this stuff to go, oh, wow, that's really far. It's like Las Vegas. You're like, I'm just going to walk to that hotel over there. And like five hours later, you're like, why is the hotel not any closer? You know, because scale. (laughs) We have done that many times in Vegas. Yes. What were you going to say, Matt? Uh, I was just going to say when you mentioned the uh, the big ship that's sort of like yeah. a star destroyer, but looks a little different. It has like these three radar dishes on it. I'm I this is my like inner child, you know. I think in the Star Wars sketchbook way back, you know, in 1977, 78, when that came out, and it was a blue, you know, paperback yeah. book, and it had all the Joe Johnston drawings in it and stuff like that. I think one of the original drawings in that of what they imagined a star destroyer would look like is that ship and you've never really seen it before. And then they built it for this. And I, it's kind of interesting that they mine their own like art director design and creative history to come up with things that are like the idea of past things. Right. So they're using their own like creative production past to generate objects that are technological, like in the universe, but that are like older. And I think that's kind of a, a fun and interesting sort of like thing that you can do when, when part of the nature of your production process for a big, you know, world building effects style film is design iteration, right. And developing a design language. You can go back to those earlier designs that you don't use and be like, you know, that one's kind of cool. Maybe we could fix it up a little bit and bring it back in. And it'll feel like something that came before. Well, I guess in the same in the same sort of bent as that is in Luthen's store, the or the antique store that he mm-hmm. inhabits and has as a front. Apparently, if you're a Star Wars freak, there is so many Easter eggs in that uh, store. Mm. And here's the thing: I kind of was aware that they were there, but I was so into Andor as it was, I didn't feel the need to go onto, you yeah. know, the internet and find out what they were. Like it wasn't like. It didn't feel like they were putting them there just so I'd go, oh, check that out. Oh, check that out. Right. I mean, I'm sure that if I was a hyper fan, I, and, you know, people pointed out that there are various things that I think Padwin has as a hair decoration or, you know, all sorts of interesting artifacts that you can relate, which is obviously fun for, as you say, mining their own um, culture. Well, that's the place of, to put them, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the logical that place space. to put them. But, but like, there's feel a, like apparently was, there's a, Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but it didn't feel like that was just there as an no. Easter egg fest and we were all going to go, No, I don't know, I just didn't even feel the need to. I thought it was like n- enough that you kind of knew that that's what they were doing and then I I was okay with that. Whereas, I didn't see it, but I, yeah, go ahead, Mark. Oh, I was just going to say, whereas I think in like, you know, when we talked about the Boba Fett show, 
and how you oh, know yeah. at, the, at the end in the sort of climactic scene where I mean I you know it's I guess it's kind of fun but like it feels like it's so heavily invested in a kind of fan service and th- that can be fun for a certain sec- segment of the audience but I, I feel like for somebody like me and I I think I'm a you know a Star Wars fan I feel like some of that stuff for me is kind of alienating like it's not it's less about cinema and storytelling in a cinematic way. And it's more about fan culture. And I, that's not as interesting. Yeah, it becomes Comic-Con versus the real thing. It becomes fast food versus a really, you know, yeah. well-constructed meal. Yeah. But again, I think we've made multiple points where there is tons of fan service in here. It's just not only fan service. Right. It is, it's the whole meal. It's not just a piece of it. And then to that point, I will pick another great sequence, which we mentioned earlier, which is the tractor beam sequence. Every Star Wars thing has a fucking tractor beam sequence yep. because it's cool. Yep. And we don't have real tractor beams. So yeah, let's do it. But that could have been a super fan servicey. I mean, look, even Guardians of the Galaxy had a tractor beam gag. You know what I mean? Like but what but was nice it is it been... wasn't just like, oh, we're going to reverse the selenium rectifier and magically it all no. breaks. It was yeah. like, hey, this is some plausible <laughs> kind of tech that somebody's come up with to fight a tractor beam, which is to shoot a bunch of stuff that's going to be attracted by the tractor beam and lacerate it. I right. Thought but that was but again, idea. just from a conceptual standpoint, though, you're giving the fans the tractor beam with a, with a Star Destroyer kind of thing, but making it functional. Uh so, so, which, which just the thing that's great about the Andor series in general is that it just makes, for me, it makes the JJ sequels like seem like wasted opportunities. Oh, completely. I, because I think you're that, just, you're like, yeah. look, you can clearly, you can do it. Yeah. Yep. Like, how come you can't do it here? And that's not a Filoni Favreau thing. I love what Filoni and Favreau do. They have their thing. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it, we're starting to get these like modular sort of thematic things. It's almost like Abbott Costello and this and that. You get Filoni and Favreau, you have Gilroy, you have JJ. You know, they all have their things. And no one's wrangling the things effectively, but the, and I think to your earlier point, Mike, about Ray being, you know, connected to the star Wars or to the, the, the Skywalker uh, elite, as it were, um, you won't be shocked to know that Colin Trevorrow, who was doing the original episode nine, his whole script is online. You can find it with plot point beats and breakdowns, and you will have you would have been much more oh, pleased no, and surprised really? with his script because oh, no, she is just a nobody. Because she is just a nobody. In, I, in the I would term have loved that. that. And I would have and, loved that. And which ties into Ryan Johnson's, you know, beat at the yep. end of episode seven, partially because Ryan Johnson also wrote the treatment for nine or eight and nine at the same time, but didn't make nine. So it's, this is the thing. It's, it's like right there and it's so doable, but their fan service gets in the way. And I think that 
we keep reiterating that that for whatever and maybe Gilroy just isn't a Star Wars fan and maybe that's what you need. Um, that's pure speculation on my part. Clearly, he was brought in for whatever reasons, for whoever's version of the story you're you're told uh, for for Rogue One. But whatever it is, he was a part of that. He clearly enjoys the Star Wars universe or just likes a, a 24 episode job. There's no way for us to know that right now, but he doesn't fall into the trap of, you know, to, to make a very subtle Admiral Akbar joke to, to get stuck in fan service. You know what I mean? He said fan servicely. <laughs> I mean, you know, we all I, I don't know. I, I just figure like what's, what happens so much with these things is that you want to use a music analogy, you want your band to play, you know, the hits that you know so you can sing along with them. But the trouble is if they only replay all their old music over and over again, it's like, yeah, it's both my a little disappointing. In that, on that analogy, my favorite my favorite thing, uh, one of my bands that I liked growing up, I remember hearing the singer say uh, at one point he said, yeah, they, you know, we're, we made a new album and people you want it to sound like the old album. And he said, but why would you make the same album twice when you can play the first one twice? And I always thought, <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of sums it up, you know? Yeah. And it's almost like you think that what you want is just the greatest hits, but actually it's not a very fulfilling thing. It's actually more interesting to have some thing in you, right? You can go to mm -hmm. the restaurant and order the same food every time, but, and you, you did like it when you had it originally and there's no denying it but after a while you're just eating the same thing every time and they're like hey let's try something different just in life did it's you, good to have your expectations yeah. uh challenged yeah absolutely <laughs> did you guys catch did you watch the post credits scene on the last episode okay so i'm an idiot and i didn't watch it having said that i then went back and watched it when everybody okay, like yeah and then then i was like Oh my God, what an idiot that I missed it. And also what a brilliant post. That's I exactly knew, what I knew that's what they were making though. I mean, like, yeah, no, of course I know, but that's yeah. the thing. You, but the you, thing that doesn't make sense is. I know I'm going to say the same thing. Keep yeah, going. If this yeah. is like 12 years before. <laughs> no, like five. It, five years before. It's finished already. Like that doesn't, that, doesn't that same thing happen in Rogue One? Well, they, no, the they just seat going? the dish. They just seat the dish. But right now the dish is in oh, space and half so the, it's going to take still many in, years to bring it i guess <laughs> i well the death star still it's it's in death star 2 sort of half being built thing yeah. you don't know what's I happening just on the like inside they, could, they, they was it's it was too finished it should have been more unfinished <laughs> I, i'm with you that was my only thought i was like wait when does this take place just for continuity's yeah. sake yeah. I, I was less worried about that because if you've ever built a house, it gets to watertight lockup stage and inside is still just like wires oh, hanging out of walls yeah. and <laughs> it takes a long time to finish it. And but I would say this that they it's a planet. It is a planet planet sized <laughs> chip, you know. Like. Yeah, they haven't had the plasterers come in and actually do the kind of drywalling yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. They haven't put in the uh the Grass Valley three hundred switcher controller yet for the <laughs> yeah, um, it's true. for the beam. But um yeah. <laughs> I, I know, I guess for me, it's just, it uh, keeps on again and again, emphasizing like, you know, we talk about this idea about whether the visual effects service the story, is it, you know, whatever. The problem is sometimes they construct the story to allow you to do lots of visual effects. And then of mm -hmm. course, the visual effects does exactly what it was asked of it. And in this one, it was like they were constructing the story so they didn't need lots of visual effects, but when they did need it, they just turned it up to 11. And so it had so much more impact. 
it just felt so much more. I never would have had that kind of visceral reaction to the ship going overhead if, as I said before, it had happened in the previous you know, 12 shots. And so that's um, that's brilliant. Can I can I bring up just in general? So the only thing that we know for sure in this show that is completely computer generated is space, right? Like external external shots, like not sure. inside ships, but external sure. shots. And I I I'm struck by the sort of transition from OG like Van Nuys, you know, ILM to modern ILM in the way that there was a softness to space on film and in the, the, however they shot it with the multiple, you know, different ways to create space and ships and whatever in let's say episode four, OG Star Wars versus now when you get very like James Webb, you know, pin sharp stars and and sort of ships that are lit you know probably more accurately like interstellar style just like hard single source you know no no intermediate colors other than just hard light and black no atmospheric haze no atmosphere (laughs) yeah and there there is something about it that every time I see it, I'm still like, ugh, like not in a bad way, but every time I see a modern exterior, just space shot in these shows, it just makes me go, that's fake. Again, I know it's fake, it's space, but it, and that's fine. It, there's just something about it that hasn't fully like stuck in my brain. Uh, I don't think it's not an execution problem. I think it's a me problem, but uh, it, it's one of the few things that jump out at me. Um, you know, all the fantastical things of like the, the, um, the heist and the meteor, ex, you know, escape and the guys jumping off the prison into the water. Like I'm all good with all of that. And it's just, it's weird. It's just a, it's just a weird sort of thing that I, I, don't I was know. more obsessed with the fact that everything's got octagonal shapes. That was like yeah. everything. Everything uh, is. I think uh, there's got- there's three three other things that I would want to mention in this that I think are great. Uh, I love the device, the torture device that they use of mm-hmm. the songs of the like dying children or something. I mean, it's so horrifying. Like, and that it totally just burns into your brain and turns you into like this kind of messed up, you know, psycho. I thought that was just such a a cool idea, but like also so kind of distressing and disturbing. And then the second thing is uh, Fiona Shaw. I think like mm-hmm. she's so awesome and he's just amazing. such a great actor and so fun to watch. And she just has so much presence and charisma on screen. I think she's excellent casting choice. And then the last thing, the other one, other quick to speak to your point, Mike, about the the use of effects of of the visual effects in a much more contained way where like we don't see much and then there's this burst of a visual effect when they are first approaching the um the heist and they're getting closer and closer to the uh where they steal the i guess it's like some kind of money right (laughs) the payroll um they're they're walking by and they're in their kind of you know uh nomadic garb and i think to uh you know, traditional looking TIE fighters come down and fly over this uh, mm-hmm. body of water and make the loud TIE fighter sound. And 
they go out one way and go over and then they come back, I think again, and go back over again. And it's a, it's just one little effects moment, but it has the classic sound effect and the look, and there's some, um, you know, distortion on the water as they go over. Mm -hmm. And it just, it's just enough for any fan of, you know, the star Wars universe to be like, Oh yeah, this is Star Wars. This is cool. There's some Tie Fighters, you know. Like it just is a but little that were menacing. And that were menacing. They're menacing, and it was them. so well executed too, right? I mean, great looking visual it's, effect shot. And again, fan service, but on a new menu. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, I've been to this restaurant yeah. before, but I haven't quite seen a burger served like this. But I know <laughs> it's a burger, you know. Uh, and it's not until the it's not until the sequels that we get to see a lot of the spaceships, TIE fighters, X-wings, whatever in atmosphere in plant, you know, cause like Luke comes in to Dagobah, but we really just see him kind of like the ship on the wires landing and it looks great, but like there's no intermediate thing. And I think it's really like episode seven where we got the first sort of thing of like, you know, the Todd Vaziri, you know, TIE fighters through the, through the backlit, oh yeah, the, the apocalypse, apocalypse now. now shot, like apocalypse you know, like shot, yeah. that that that's what everyone wants. Like we haven't seen that before, but it's Tie Fighters, and same thing in this. Like you're there's one of those in the new not, Avatar too, with all the amp suits. <laughs> uh, <laughs> seen it in the trailer, uh, but, but again, you get to your point. You get the 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 nod, but they're reminding you. Hey, I know we've got, we're like in a world you're not super familiar with. You don't know all these characters, by the way. Yes, it's Star Wars. Here's a, you get the sound, you get the thing, you get the like impact. It is a background action of sorts that adds ticking clock. It's not this big grandiose in your face visual effects, you know, a point moment. Costumes and wardrobe in this, in this uh, mm -hmm. series I think are really good too uh totally like on par especially the non-imperial costumes the sort of you know rebel mm -hmm. garb is is cool and believable and feels very real um and then I, I don't know why I liked it because I think it's kind of hideous at the same time but the flying car the kind of blade runner spinner like car that she gets oh, in yeah. and out of I kind of dug it I thought it was kind of cool <laughs> It has well, a Macquarie I want, vibe. I want, it has a, I want one of those to take me to work. Be killer. It's like a it's like a roadster mit, mixed with like a Maybach kind of like really stretchy old like uh, it's a, our, it's a grill, our grill future city on the front of that. Thing yeah, too. yeah. It's like our future. Like when the fifth in the fifties when they wrote you know drew pictures of what our future was going to look like, even though <laughs> yeah. Star Wars yeah. is in the past. You know, it's it's got it has that. Which I I kind of attribute to like Macquarie took a little bit of that stuff for for his designs, but I wanted to point out also what you said about Fiona Shaw. I thought the ending procession with her projection was fucking dope. Like when they her, turned her like, into a brick. <laughs> well, but again, again, fan service. We hear the it is Leia. Yeah projection on a larger scale she's asking for your help to join the rebellion and all the same things it is it is in fact mirrored moments but done so eloquently and so well that you are like 
this is I feel connected to this. I'm not entirely sure why, because it's they're not doing what they've done before. But yes, they are doing what they did before. It's just in such a great new wrapper in a new story. That is proper fan service because you're just giving the fans what they want, but they're getting more than they asked for. We want more of what we need, not what we want. Hey, yeah, on that exactly. note, we're going to finish up for the week. But, like, it's been great talking to you guys. Um, and I'm so glad we get a second season of this. And hopefully also its success will uh, cause them to, you know, take stock of what. Because, quite frankly, Star Wars has kind of vanished off the feature film slate. You know, we previously were expecting sort of one or two a year, and now it's nothing. Mm -hmm. So hopefully this gives it new juice. Because, you know, it is something that I certainly love and, I laughed before, Matt, when you said, I think I'm a Star Wars fan. Having been in Star Wars yourself, yes, yes I think you probably are a bit of <laughs> I mean, a Star I Wars fan. I think I am. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> so in finishing up, Jason, where can uh, people connect up with you and uh, follow you and, and a like? Uh, Jason Diamond, one word on all the socials, uh, the Diamond Bros, my brother and I's uh, company. And... Uh, our virtual production stage, zerospace.co. And just for those of you that are keeping track, I am still begging Jason for an interview, discussion, podcast, whatever, about his virtual production stage. And he keeps on putting me off because he's so successful and he's so busy. <laughs> oh, God, but yeah. It's not that I can't be bothered. <laughs> it's that Jason can't be bothered. But if you it's continue me, to pester me, me I'll continue Mike. to pester him. And Matt, Matt, what about you? Oh, I'm uh, at... Let's see. What's the school called? I teach at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, and uh, yeah, about to go on break. I can't wait to go on break. I'm making all kinds of uh, robots right now, doing some cool robot really? project, and not real robots, but virtual robots. Okay. And um, I would love uh, to propose two ideas that everybody will hear me propose in the show, which is we should do a discussion about some of these AI art making tools and what they mean yes. for visual effects and, um, art direction and stuff. And, uh, we got to do avatar. <laughs> I I've that's seen avatar the as this, we're recording this. It hasn't actually, I got a press screening, so it's definitely something that this team will be discussing and in depth. And let me just say that there's a point in it where I was like, damn, that's good makeup. Wait a second. That can't be makeup. That's actually all CG. Mate, the water's CG. Everything's CG. Oh, my God. I've been watching an animated feature. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so cool. So, but anyway, we'll discuss that uh, in an upcoming episode. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Uh, guys, thank you so much uh, for listening to the show. And uh, we look forward to, as I say, covering that. And I'll somehow work out how to fit in an AI visual effects special uh, that would be fun. I'm not sure how we'll do that, but we'll work it out. Anyway, thank you so much for your time, guys. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at thefx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.